we turn to God's Word this morning, and you can start turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. I just want to clarify uh, one announcement and make one more, uh, just to say I maybe wasn't clear with regards to the Finance Committee meeting that will be at the church. That's going to be on Tuesday, the 19th of April at 7 p.m., uh, so that's the Tuesday night just before uh, the uh, quarterly, uh, the annual general meeting on Wednesday, the 20th. So it's not this coming Tuesday, it's, it's next Tuesday. So please take note of that. And then just to remind you that our Easter program uh, starts on Thursday evening um, here at the church at 7.30 uh, for our Maundy Thursday evening service. That's a, um, a communion service as we gather together around the Lord's Supper as Jesus did with his disciples on that night uh, that he was betrayed. Uh, and then... Friday morning, we have our um, Good Friday services at 8 and at 10, and then on Sunday, we have a sunrise service here at the church. Be here at about quarter past six, uh, Lord willing, it won't be raining, and we'll actually get to see the sunrise, uh, but quarter past six, we're going to start meeting there, and half past six uh, outside on the, gr- on the grass, uh, we'll have a sunrise resurrection uh, service, uh, and that's just a brief devotion and a time of worship. Uh, Then we'll have some coffee and hot cross buns, and then the 8 o'clock service will be at 8, and then uh, again the second service at 10. So please do plan to join us for the entire weekend, starting on Thursday evening through to Sunday, and use this as an opportunity to invite friends and and family to join with you, uh, particularly if they are unbelievers uh, or don't have a, a church that they are regularly involved in. Use this opportunity to invite them from Thursday right through to Sunday, and let's continue to be praying for Trent Air. Uh, as he uh, prepares to bring us God's word over that weekend. Well, please turn in your Bibles then to Revelation uh, chapter 8, and we're going to be reading from verse 6 to 13. Uh, we'll continue into chapter 9 in, this, in the sermon, um, but we'll read chapter 9 a little bit later. So Revelation chapter 8 and verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, that is bitter, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Well, this is God's word just so far in his word this morning, and let's just come to the Lord again uh, briefly to commit this time to him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, uh, as we have a portion of Scripture before us, which uh, is not easy, we do ask, Lord God, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to understand that which Uh, You wanted those seven churches to whom this book was originally written to understand, that we would understand that which you've intended for your church throughout the ages of history to understand, and that particularly we as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church here uh, in Johannesburg in 2022 would understand the truths from your word that you want us to understand today. And so, Lord, we do ask that as we come to this portion of Scripture that you would help me to be clear in the preaching of it, that you would help us as your people here to have hearts that are receptive to your word. Uh, And may you be glorified in our midst, even as we consider this most difficult portion. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, today, as you know, or if you didn't know, you should know by now, today is Palm Sunday, and uh, we've been focusing uh, in our decor and in the kids' participation, uh, in the worship of our God, in the reading of Scripture, on this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And the crowds lined the streets, we are told, with their cloaks. They threw them on the ground, and, and they came and lined the streets, waving palm branches, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But the account of the triumphal entry in the Gospels is also a story of great spiritual contrast. We could almost say one of great spiritual confusion. Because in the midst of all this jubilant celebration, we see that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he stopped and he wept over the city. Because he knew that the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, had no idea who he really was and what he had come to do. And so just a few days later, the same crowd who was celebrating and dancing on Palm Sunday were the very same people who exchanged their joy for hatred, their palm branches for sticks and and spitting, and their hosannas for the words, crucify him, crucify him. Now this incredible picture of spiritual contrast is one which the book of Revelation has been revealing since the very beginning. Namely that what we see in the world around us is not a true reflection of the spiritual realities behind the scenes. Our physical world, the world we live in, is immersed in a far greater spiritual world. And because our eyes cannot see this greater reality, I think sadly for the most part we live as Christians as if this greater reality does not exist. But in the book of Revelation, Jesus comes and he he lifts the veil, the veil of these hidden spiritual realities and truths which exist beyond uh, the, the sight of our physical eyes. And he shows us what is really going on in the world. Jesus saw as he came into Jerusalem what was really going on in the spiritual dimension, even though what was happening in the physical realm looked very, very different. And so we've seen this happening a few times in Revelation already. Firstly, we saw the seven letters to the seven churches, that what these churches were facing was being driven by a far deeper spiritual reality. We saw that there were deceptions in the spiritual realm, false teachings, persecutions that were coming at them from Satan and his demons, while at the same time the the amazing contrast that we saw Jesus was reigning on his throne over the churches. He was calling them to faithful perseverance so that they might conquer even if they were put to death. Then in the second cycle of visions, we saw, again, the the contrast between the physical realities of the the suffering and the persecutions and even the martyrdom of God's people on earth as the seven seals of the scroll were opened. We saw the contrast with the spiritual realities of God's final judgment uh, of the wicked in response to the prayers of the saints that were brought into his presence. We saw the great contrast that despite the the suffering and the persecution at the hands of evil men, not one of God's people who are sealed with his name will be harmed by this impending judgment of God against the wicked. Instead, we saw that every one of those sealed would be gathered up into this innumerable number from every tribe and nation and people and language The church triumphant we saw last week, worshipping God around the throne while the wicked on the earth would be finally destroyed in God's great day of judgment against all that is evil. And so that brings us this morning to the the beginning of the third cycle of visions. If you've got your diagram, I'm not going to refer to it specifically this morning, but we're starting today the, the third cycle of visions. And again, we're going to see the great spiritual realities which are taking place throughout the church age between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ, but this time revealing to us the true spiritual reality of God's judgment against the sinfulness and the wickedness of this world in which we live. 
Once again, I want you to see that the third cycle of visions, which we are calling the seven trumpets in chapter 8 to 11, is a parallel vision to the seven seals, which we saw in chapters 4 to 8. It does not follow on chronologically after the seven seals, but it takes us back to the beginning as we continue in parallel to consider a different dimension of what is taking place on the earth. What we see is that the seven seals in chapters 4 to 8 describe to us the purposes of God for his people, namely victory through tribulation. And now we're going to see the seven trumpets describe the purposes of God against the wicked, namely destruction through judgment. You might have been asking throughout the seven seals, when are the wicked going to be judged? Are they only going to be judged at the very end? Well, now we have the answer to show that God's judgment against the wicked actually begins in this life. And yes, is stored up ultimately for that great day of the Lord. Derek Thomas says, the seals view the unfolding of the redemptive purposes of God from the point of view of the Lord's own people, those who are sealed. But the trumpets view the same reality from the point of view of the unsealed, those who are not the people of God. The opening of the seals brings great consolation to the people of God. The sounding of the trumpet brings great woes upon those who are not the people of God. And so our section this morning actually starts back in chapter 8, verse 2. I didn't read that this morning, but look back at chapter 8, verse 2, where we see John says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, this is crucial to understand this morning, because we must see that each of these trumpets And we'll see as they are are announced, as the trumpet blows, they bring with them various kinds of judgments and woes against the wicked. These trumpet blasts are coming from the sovereign and holy judge of the universe. Today we are going to counter some incredibly terrifying imagery, particularly when we get to chapter 9. Symbols which are are probably more comfortable at home in a, a science fiction horror movie than in the Bible, we would think. And yet we must not lose sight of the sovereignty of God over all that is evil. The seven angels that stand before God were given seven trumpets to them. The terrible symbols of judgment that we are about to consider are coming upon the earth, upon the wicked, under the divine purposes of the holy judge. And they accomplish his judgments against all that is sinful and wicked in this world. Just to help us understand this chapter 8 and chapter 9 a little bit better, uh, it's important to see that the vision of the seven trumpets has a very clear parallel to some of the plagues and the judgment of God against Pharaoh and the people of Egypt in the Old Testament. You'll recall the ten plagues that God sent upon Pharaoh and his people in order to get him to release or to let his people go. We're going to see in the first trumpet, hail. The second and third trumpet, water turning into blood and being made poisonous and killing people as a result. In the fourth trumpet, we're going to see darkness. In the fifth trumpet, locusts. In the sixth trumpet, three plagues of of pestilence and disease. And then in the seventh trumpet, death of the wicked and deliverance for God's people. So let me read to you a short quote from one theologian to help us understand this connection between what we're reading here in Revelation 8 and 9 and the accounts of of God's dealings with Egypt. He says, Egyptian typology is an emphatic way of saying that present disasters are but a prelude to God's great deliverance. In each of the heavenly trumpet blasts, God is saying to the Pharaoh of the new Egypt, Let my people go. At the same time, he's saying to Christians, when all this begins to happen, breathe again and hold your heads high because your rescue is at hand. 
So with that, by way of introduction, let's move on and look at the blowing of the first four trumpets uh, today. Uh, the first four trumpets go together, and then we'll move on to look at five and six uh, towards the end of the message. But let's start with chapter 8, verse 6. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now let me say a few things which come out of this first trumpet, and then you'll see that they apply to the others as well. Firstly, I must remind you again, as I explained in detail last week, that John is not giving us a literal description of some future period in history But he is painting a a very dramatic, a very vivid picture using symbolic language of the judgment of God against the wicked. Against the wicked throughout the entire period of the church age. You'll see if you look at your diagram that the blowing of these six trumpets covers the entire church age and reveals through this very dramatic symbolic language the reality of God's judgment against the earth and against its wicked inhabitants throughout the history of the world, leading up to his return. And so the first trumpet in verse 6 and 7 deals with God's judgment against the land. Then the second trumpet in verse 8 and 9 deals with God's judgment against the sea. And then the third trumpet in verse 10 and 11 deals with God's judgment against the rivers and the the freshwater springs. And then the fourth trumpet in verse 12 deals with God's judgment against the sky and the heavenly bodies. So while there certainly are some people who die along the way during these first four trumpets, we see that the focus in the first four trumpets is not on the people themselves, but it is God's judgment against this natural world. The number four, as we've seen before, is a symbolic number for the whole world, north, east, south, and west. It's it's a symbol for the whole of the universe. And so these first four trumpets reveal God's judgment against all of his natural created order, land, sea, rivers, and sky. Now, where does this come from? Why is God judging the earth? Why is God judging nature? Well, we know from Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, that because Adam sinned, and Adam sinned as the representative head over all of God's creation, we read in Genesis chapter 3 that the earth was made subject to God's curse as a result. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 to 22, Paul makes it clear that all of creation has been subjected to futility. That's his word for the curse there to bondage, to to corruption because of sin. And Paul tells us that creation groans under the weight of this curse of sin. So these first four trumpets reveal to us what this groaning looks like as as creation writhes and, and twists and buckles and breaks under the hand of God subjecting it to futility. But another common thread that we see in these first four trumpets is this number of one-third. The first trumpet, one-third of the earth and one-third of the trees are burned up. The second trumpet, one-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the sea creatures die. One-third of the ships were destroyed. The third trumpet, one-third of the fresh waters were struck and became bitter and poisonous. And the fourth trumpet, one-third of the sun and the moon and the stars were struck, so that one-third of the day and one-third of the night was plunged into darkness. So again, as we've seen with all the numbers in Revelation so far, these percentages of 33.33333% recurring uh, are not meant to be taken in a literal mathematical way, but are meant to be understood symbolically. And I think the clear understanding as we take a step back from these first four trumpets together is that this one-third is a reference to partial judgment. Not one of these judgments against land and sea and rivers and sky is complete. Not at this point. 
God's curse against this fallen and and sin-corrupted world throughout history is only partial. And we're going to see later why, but but let me tell you now so that you can understand these trumpets in the light of where it's heading The reason for these trumpets being blown, the the reason for this partial judgment on the earth is because God's purpose is to use them as a call to repentance. We're going to see that a, a little bit later. There is much in this natural world which is beautiful to see and enjoy. The Nature Channel uh, documentaries do a great job of showing us our planet's incredible beauty. That's the two-thirds that we we see on TV so often. But if we're willing to look, the news channel likes to reveal to us the other third of this world that we live in, the world that is very broken when land and sea and rivers and, and sky writhe and twist, bringing great destruction in their path. And all of this is a reminder to us. It's, it's all a pointer forward that there is a day of judgment, a final day of judgment that is coming. As we saw with the sixth and the seventh seal in chapter six and eight, uh, we see this final day of judgment again coming when the seventh trumpet is sounded. And on that day, everything will be finally and fully destroyed. But until then, There is this partial judgment of God against the earth and against the wicked. This whole created universe, along with the wicked who have not been sealed by the Lamb of God, they will be finally destroyed on that day, finally destroyed by fire. But until then, all of these trumpet blasts of God are warnings of God calling us to repentance. And so as we consider these verses, we must keep in mind the first sermon in the series when I showed you the bright painting of Tundi. Hope you remember that. Uh, Thick, broad strokes of oil paint layered one over the other across the canvas. And up close, if you zoomed into any one of those strokes of of the paintbrush, the colors were confusing. The strokes seemed to not make any sense. But when you stood back and you looked at the picture as a whole, it was not only clear but it jumped out to you with with gripping clarity that not even a photograph could have done. So then remaining faithful to this apocalyptic genre, we are not meant to zoom into the details of how hail and fire and blood can fall from the sky. Please don't ask me whose blood it was that fell from the sky. Or how um, how a great mountain could have been thrown into the sea. Or how a falling star could only affect a third of the world's rivers in verse 10. Or or how is it possible for a third of the day and a third of the night to be dark? Each of these bright brush strokes seems somewhat confusing if you zoom in and you try to understand them in a literal way. But if you take a step back... The big picture is not only abundantly clear, but it strikes you like no detailed history book ever could. With all of this language of fire and blood and and great calamities which hit the earth and the sea and the sky and the rivers, the picture is clear. That God's hand of consigning this created order to futility is evident throughout history. And thankfully by God's common grace, It only ever affects part of the earth at any given time in history. Part of the sea, part of the waters, part of the sky. Because if it was not for God's restraining grace, if he withdrew the word of his mouth, which keeps the universe in order, it would all implode into chaos and destruction in a split second. But his judgments through these storms Hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, lightning, thunder, fire, disease, meteors, cosmic stars imploding into black holes. All of these are warning signs of God's great judgment against sin. Each one is a call to repentance. For the great and awesome day of the Lord's judgment is still coming. And on that day, who can stand? Now, I said that although some people die along the way through these first four trumpet blasts, uh, the focus was not on the wicked in these trumpet blasts. 
We know that in times of, of great disease and, and natural disaster that both the righteous and the unrighteous face the same fate. That explains why even Christians die throughout history when natural disasters strike the earth. But now in verse 13, we have a moment of pause. John's gaze is caught up with something new which he sees, and what he sees reveals a most ominous message. Look at verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So what John sees here is an eagle. More likely, a better translation would be a vulture. It's the same word in the Greek. And the clue to this comes from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, where Jesus said, wherever the corpse is, wherever there's dead bodies, there the vultures will gather. In other words, the vulture that John sees here circling overhead brings a terrifying message of what is about to take place. And he does this with a, a three-fold pronouncement of, of woe. Just like we have a, a three-fold pronouncement of God's holiness, holy, holy, holy. Here we have a three-fold pronouncement of judgment. Woe, woe, woe. You see the next the focus of the next trumpet shifts now from the earth to the earth dweller, from nature to people, from God's general judgment because of Adam's sin to God's specific judgment because of personal sin. And so let's read through this next section, chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, to try and absorb the big picture. Follow with me in your Bibles. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, or the abyss. He opened the shaft of the abyss, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, these locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, I must just remind you uh, again to remain consistent with what I've been saying all along about how we are to understand the book of Revelation symbolically. Because even those people who insist on a literal reading of Revelation are forced to become inconsistent here in chapter 9 as to how to interpret these locusts. Let me give you an example. Hal Lindsey, uh, who is described as the father of modern-day Bible prophecy movement, he's also been called the best-known prophecy teacher in the world. He's sold over 50 million copies of his 70-plus books. I would not buy one of them. Please don't. But he, who consistently puts forward a literalistic, futuristic interpretation of Revelation, when he comes to these Chapter, chapter 9, he says, well, you know, these locusts are, are not literal locusts. 
They are in actual fact John's description of 20th century heavily armored Chinese attack helicopters. Really? This is a good example of what I said last week, that if you have to go outside of Scripture to define the meaning of the symbols, at best it becomes wild speculation. But sadly, the consequences of this approach is often far worse. So let's come back to the first century, to John's revelation in the historical context and purpose of revelation, and see what these symbols taught those seven churches and are meant to teach us in the context of Old and New Testament scriptures. So verse 1, we see a star fallen from heaven who is given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. In Greek, it's the word abyss. Now, we don't need to speculate on what that is because Jesus has already told us in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17, we have the 72 disciples who return to Jesus with joy, and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, which both tie us into this passage in Revelation, over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We also know from Revelation chapter 11 and chapter 17 that the abyss is the dwelling place of the beast. That's the servant of Satan who brings deception and destruction on the world. Luke chapter 8 verse 31 tells us that the abyss is the dwelling place of demons. And so it is clear just from verse 1 already that what John is describing is not some 21st century vision of the Chinese or the Russian army, but it's a description of Satan's demonic army being released into the world. We are told later in verse 11 that the king of this demonic army is the archdemon called Abaddon in Hebrew or Apollyon in Greek, whose name in both languages means the destroyer. And so this picture is indeed a a terrifying one as this black smoke of, of this eternal fires of the abyss rise into the sky, this smoke cloud turns into millions of locusts. These are no ordinary locusts. They have tails which sting like scorpions, teeth like lions, breastplates like iron, and their wings make this terrifying noise of thousands of horses and chariots running into battle. But please notice verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. We read that Satan was given the key to this bottomless pit. Verse 3, the locusts were given power. Verse 5, they were given permission to torment the people of the earth. Despite all the terrifying imagery in this vision, John makes it clear three times that God is sovereignly in control over this evil horde. Now, how can that be? How can God be in control of such evil monsters with evil intentions? Because this is God's judgment against the wicked. God hands them over to their own. You see, you either belong to Christ or you belong to Satan. And if you belong to Satan, the evidence that God's judgment is upon you is that he removes his restraint from evil and he hands you over to your own. Young people, if there are any young people here this morning... There is great warning in this picture, but not just the young people, but particularly young people, you who who long to be set free from your parents' control, you who who long for freedom to go out and party with, with all your ungodly friends, you who can't wait for your independence so that you can shack up with your non Christian boyfriend or girlfriend, be warned. That what you are asking for when it comes is not freedom, but it's God's handing you over in judgment to Satan. Notice these locusts do not come out to eat grass or green plant. 
No, their focus is people. These are man-eating locusts. But they are only allowed to torment or torture people for five months. They may not kill them. You see, it is God who determines the precise boundaries of their evil activity. Now, who are the people whom these locust-like demons will torture? Well, verse 4 tells us, only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. I'm so glad I'm part of the 144,000. If you're a Christian today, a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the 144,000 who have been sealed by Jesus Christ. You have his name written on your forehead. You've received his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your safety. Praise God today, like those 72 praise Jesus, that these demons cannot harm you. But as Jesus reminded the 72, praise God even more that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what is the meaning then of the five months of torment um, for those who are unsealed? Well, there are various ideas, but I think the two which make the most sense in the context is that 10, we know the number 10 is a very symbolic number in Scripture and in Revelation for completeness. And so then five is believed to be the number of incompleteness. In other words, five represents again that which is partial. Just as the one-third referred to only partial judgment in the first four trumpets, so the five months refers to partial judgment of the wicked. Which makes a lot of sense because these people are only tormented. They're not killed. So in other words, this is the earthly, temporal judgment of God against sin. But also five months, we are told, is the, the lifespan of a locust which again shows us that God limits the the time span of the activity of these demonic creatures and their torturings. God's judgment of sin in this life is not continuous and eternal. No, his common grace prevails for much. But when these demons are released, their torment is only partial. And so these judgments seem to be partial in both time uh, and in not leading to death. Uh, I think which confirms the overall purpose for these seven trumpets, which is that God is using them to call people to repentance. Or at least the first six are being used to call people to repentance. Now please look with me at verse 7. For here we see something even more concerning than this terrible image of the swarm of locusts with scorpion tails. Look at verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair. Now, yeah, John tells us something which is quite surprising and contrary to what we might expect. He says that these demons, they look majestic. They look like horses prepared for battle. They are wearing what looked to be like crowns of gold, meaning that they appear at first glance to to seem victorious. They have faces like humans. They're approachable and sociable, and their hair was like women's hair. I hope none of you ladies still want me to try and interpret these locusts literally. I think the picture's clear. These terrifying, demonic torturers have a very attractive and appealing human side. They appear majestic, victorious, friendly, dare we say even beautiful. But just like little Red Riding Hood discovered when she said, but but Granny, what big teeth you have? We see in verse 8 goes on quickly to remind us of the wolf's answer, all the better to eat you with, my dear. Here we see the spiritual truth of the first woe. As Satan's demons are released across the earth throughout history, we see their destructive power and torture which Satan has over the hearts of those who do not bear the seal of God, whose names are not written in heaven. Whether it is success or sex or drugs or alcohol or fame or power or pleasure or money, These demons draw you in with their humane appearance. 
the seduction of their beautiful hair, their impressive power, their shiny crowns. And as soon as you come close, they grab you with the teeth of a lion, sting you with the sting of a scorpion, and the pleasure turns into pain, the sex turns into suffering, the the highs collapse into lows, fame into fumes, money into misery, drugs into depression, alcohol into abandonment. And please see the terrifying reality of verse 6. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Isn't this such a striking picture of so many people in this world today who have everything that Satan has on offer? And yet they are miserable and they end up taking their own life. Well, there's one more word to consider today in verse 13. Let's just read that last section together, verse 13 to 19. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Mathematicians, that's 200 million. I heard their number, John says. Verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So here we see in verse 13 that the sixth angel, he blows his trumpet, and we're taken back, in a sense, to the scene that we had in chapter 8, verse 1 to 5. Remember when the, the, the prayers of the saints were poured out as a sweet-smelling uh, aroma on the altar of gold before God. This is the same altar. John hears the voice from the altar giving permission to now release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And so what we see happening in the sixth trumpet is a response to the prayers of the saints. It's coming from the altar of the saints' prayers. The cries of the martyrs who cried out to God to act justly against the wicked. And so the judgment of God, we see steps up another degree here in the sixth trumpet as the focus now is not just to torment the wicked in their wickedness, but to put to death a third of mankind. Again, a third of the wicked because the sealed are spared the judgment of God. And again, the reference to the four angels here is likely again a reference to the judgment of God covering the whole earth. And I would agree with many commentators that these four angels are most likely demons, for we are told that they are bound at the river Euphrates, verse 14, and then they are released in verse 15. And this is specific language of binding and releasing, which Revelation 20 uses of Satan himself. And so the symbol then is then a great army of demonic forces of Satan released into the world as with the locusts, but now they have a different mission, a different mission. The river Euphrates, that was a reference to the river that separated the land of Canaan from all the pagan nations of the world. And so this would point to all those powers who've stood in opposition against God, all the the pharaohs of history this innumerable army of of 200 million troops as they move across the earth causing death to a third of mankind. I think here the reference is to Satan controlling the powers of world government and military regimes to bring about God's judgment upon the wicked on the earth throughout history. We also see that this army and its horses are described almost using the same language as the demonic locusts in the fifth trumpet. We we see breastplates of fire and sulfur and, and sapphire, heads like lions, tails like poisonous vipers, 
And they breathe out of their nostrils the plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur, which kills a third of the world. Again, as we just then step back from the details, we see very clearly that the fifth and the sixth trumpets go together as God pours out his judgment on the wicked on the earth. Throughout history, we see Satan's activity in both ways, his demons at work deceiving the nations. John tells us that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one in 1 John 5 verse 19. And so some people he deceives with all his intoxications of the pleasures of sin. But in the end, it only brings torment and the destruction of the soul. Others he comes and he kills. But notice, he only kills when God permits him to kill. When God permits him to take lives. Once God has determined that the day of their reckoning has come and they have refused to repent. But despite this whole vision being one of of terrifying uh, devastation and torture and death, nevertheless, this vision in chapter 8 and 9 is one of incredible grace. Yes, you heard me correctly. Revelation 8 and 9, possibly two of the scariest chapters in all of the Bible, is meant to encourage us as God's people with His grace. Firstly, there is the grace that all of this terrifying torment and judgment does not touch those who are sealed. Praise God that our salvation is secure. But there is also grace to be seen in that all six trumpets describe God's partial judgment in this world. From his judgment on this broken, sin-cursed world through natural disasters, to his judgments that follow after Satan's lies to torment those who pursue evil, even to his judgment through death of many in this life who refuse to bow the knee to God in worship. The reality is that all of these signs of judgment are partial, and they are partial because God is a very patient God calling all of us to repent. Look at verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Did you see that each of these trumpets of warning was meant to bring people to repentance? And only at the very end are we told that those who did not, the rest of mankind who were not killed at this point, were the ones who did not repent. While this judgment of God is striking down millions of people across the face of the earth throughout every period of history, we also see that Jesus on his white horse is riding out, conquering and to conquer through the preaching of the gospel. The good shepherd is calling to his sheep, And those who hear his voice respond in faith and are sealed. And so if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, the good news is that you're not yet dead. There is still hope for you to heed the warning of John's vision and repent. If you're sitting here today, perhaps if you're watching online and you've heard everything that God has revealed about the the demonic forces of Satan at work in this world, the demonic forces of Satan at work in your heart, and you still do not repent, then sadly you are part of this group whom John describes in verse 20 and 21. He tells you why you do not repent. He says, you do not repent because you love your idols too much. Useless idols, fabricated idols, idols of your own imagination and the deceptions of Satan. You love them too much. And secondly, you do not repent because you love your sin too much. Murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, and theft. You love it all. You know it's going to kill you. 
Sometimes you, you wish you were dead already because of these things, but you keep coming back for more. If that is you today, there is still grace on offer. God's grace is offered to you today to turn to Jesus Christ, the rider on the white horse for salvation. And this passage reveals clearly that all of this judgment and torment and torture and death is only for those who remain unsealed. But for every person who turns to Jesus, we are safe. We can stand in the midst of an otherwise terrifying world, a world in which we know evil rages, in which the spiritual forces are at war against Jesus. And we can know for certain that our victory is secure. We are safe in the arms of our captain, who is Jesus. So we're going to take a break from Revelation for a few weeks over Easter and then for us to try and get away as a family for a short break. And when we return to Revelation in May, we're going to come to the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet brings us back to the day of final judgment, that day when the shadows of all the partial judgments will become real and complete, when all mankind will face the judgment of God and the wrath of the Lamb. And on that day, God's season of patience is over. On that day, the warnings stop. On that day, there are no more second chances. The question continues to ring, will you be able to stand? So could I plead with you today, if you are not sealed by Jesus Christ today, don't wait until May to find out what will happen to you when the seventh trumpet blows. Because that trumpet may be heard any day now. And Jesus is calling you today to turn to him for salvation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again this morning for your word that you chose to reveal to us the hidden spiritual realities of what is taking place in the world around us. And Lord, every one of us who are Christians here today can testify to a season in our own life when we were attracted to and drawn to those demonic locusts that were dressed up so beautifully. We can all speak of the hurt and the pain that that caused us and others. And we all know family members and friends today who wish they were dead because of the slavery of sin over their hearts. Lord, we want to thank you for lifting the veil to show us ultimately that this is your judgment against the wicked and only the wicked. And those of us, no matter how wicked our past has been, who have turned to Jesus Christ for salvation, we are sealed, we are protected in this life and for all eternity. We are part of that innumerable multitude around the throne, worshiping you, waving palm branches for real this time, saying, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May that be our cry of our hearts today and forevermore we pray. Amen.